fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 calling, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society on September 27th. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. I just uh, ran a 5K time trial this morning, so I'm feeling accomplished already today. And a new PR. New PR today, yeah. That's significant. So, feeling good. <laughs> now I have to go walk up Mill Mountain later today because I didn't want to kill my legs by doing that yesterday. So, you know, that's another 1,300 calories I can count on burning. Woohoo! <laughs> Eating well tonight. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that, that means good meals. <laughs> but uh, what's on your mind this morning? Uh, a few things stuck out to me from this past week or some from the last couple of weeks. I was struck by the story that Maya Gabera, a big wave surfer, surfed the largest wave of the 1920 big wave season. And it's significant for a few reasons. The first is that it was a 73 and a half foot wave, uh, which is insane. And it's also significant because a woman has surfed the biggest wave of the season. Mm-hmm. So that's men and women. And that it was Maya Gabera is also significant because she nearly died. I think it was four years ago surfing big waves and was literally in rehabilitation for like three years. So she's only really been surfing the big wave circuit for the last year or so. And when she went down and almost died, she really got dragged and trolled by the surfing world to a large extent to, um, well, one of the most specific examples was Laird Hamilton, kind of the founder of big wave surfing to some extent, or at least the most well-known early big wave surfer said that she shouldn't be out in waves like that, which Hmm. it's not hard to take that a step further and say, to what extent are you saying women shouldn't be surfing Mm -hmm. big waves? Which I think is kind of a, from my impression, I'm not an expert on the surfing world, but when big wave circuits and tours got started, I did start to pay some attention for a while and I kind of check in here and there, but it just is an underlying kind of, um, a story that kind of ripples out constantly from big wave surfing if that if women should do it or not. So nonetheless, she has the biggest wave of the year. And I don't know what to think about it beyond I love that she like shoved it in Laird Hamilton's face to some extent is one way of viewing the story. It's also true that surfing big waves is deadly. Um, and it kind of goes alongside other things we've talked about the first one that comes to mind is um, free solo and free climbing Mm -hmm. and how should we view these things and what should we think about them and to what extent should we pay attention, not pay attention, push back against them? I I don't know fully. Um, But nonetheless, that happened and she did it. And so it kind of brings in those 
uh, a confluence of storylines in sports, I think. So like, it's also true that women don't make as much money in surfing as men, especially in big wave surfing. It's true that women have been told not to surf big waves. It's true that she just accomplished this incredible feat. And it's also true that it's really deadly. So I feel like there's a lot there to unpack and talk about. Yeah, I mean, the immediate question that rises for me is like this difficult thing of like, well, you know, women should be allowed to do this uh, for sure, but also uh, it's the stupidest thing I can imagine to do in some ways, um, other than perhaps free solo. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, I'm really hesitant to celebrate an accomplishment in something I feel like no one should be doing. Um, But, you know, that's a weird... um, it, it kind of reminds me of my thoughts about um, Sheryl Sandberg uh, in terms of like, should we really be pushing for women to lean in or should we be pushing for a different type of leadership instead of asking women to be more like men mm-hmm. type thing. Right. Um, but then it's, it's also like on the flip side, it's hard. Like uh, it's hard for me to believe there's, we're not going to have dumbasses that want to do this stuff uh, all the time. It's just more a matter of, uh, should we be paying them to do so? Right. And it is true that major injuries in big wave surfing have lessened in the last couple of years as it has become more mainstream. And because mainstream has led to more safety precautions and a better knowledge of how to do it safely and even new technologies to make it more safe. So I think that would go in the camp of an argument that says the more mainstream we make it and the more we acknowledge that it's happening, we can make it safer, uh, which maybe is a little bit different than free climbing, I think. Um, Cause like what technology can you add to free climbing to make it safer? I, I, I bet a climber could talk about that. Maybe, um, you know, shoes, chalk, I'm sure there's right. something. That, right. But but like I, they, so they have these like automatic release uh, life jackets now that like when a certain amount of pressure hits them, they immediately um, fill up or whatever. And so things like that and the boards are different and um, even the jet skis that are towing them in are being designed specifically for big waves. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. I, nonetheless, it's also true that the image of human beings surfing 73-foot waves is um, is mind-blowing. Uh, and so you can quickly see where the jaw is. Well, and I think um, there's an interesting question there for me of like, so, uh, so essentially what you have to do is push through years and years of significant deadly danger and people dying in order to get to the mainstream popularity that allows it to be a safe sport, which seems a little problematic in some ways. Right. uh, I've got a bone to pick. Apparently, apparently I think this goes back to my X games issues, but you know, yeah, uh, whatever. Yeah. What to do if your mission statement is push the limit. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, same for like, I am mesmerized by some of these, um, uh, like Red Bull cycling events where they have to go like ride these canyons, right. like start at the top and get to the bottom of these canyons on a mountain bike. Right. And it's like, this is stupid. Like that ridge is, is eight inches wide and you're coming down there at 20 miles an hour. That's just stupid. Right. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. And there's, a, I think what the acceptance of death in it is part of the issue for me. Like, right. uh, you know, cycling, like the Tour de France has some of the same dangers to it. Mm hmm. But there is no acceptance that someone's going to die in the peloton. Right. Um, whereas, like, something like big wave surfing, like, I feel like there's an understanding, you know, every year or two, someone's going to die doing this. And that's uh, that's really problematic. Yeah, I agree. What about you? Um, so, uh, a lot of my energy this week has gone towards this, uh, this running thing this mm -hmm. morning. Um but I was uh, intrigued, intrigued, so to speak, by watching the Great British Baking Show last night. Yeah. Not something I thought I was going to talk about ever on this podcast, but it kind of rekindled for me, like, what is the difference between competition and sport in some ways? Mm -hmm. uh, and like, what is it that we really enjoy? Is it the sport aspect or is it the competition aspect of things? And I just found myself wondering about that over the last... Uh, uh, 24 hours or so. What was it about Great British Baking that brought that for you? Well, it just felt like I'm getting some of that fix that I like of seeing people compete against each other, but it's also like not as deadly serious and it's just a much more pleasant venue in which to get that fix, so to speak. Right, um, right. Like I didn't like – so often when I watch Arsenal or even even sports I don't care about. So, like, I mean, I don't like watching Arsenal because I don't like having a horse in the race. That makes watching unenjoyable for me. Right. Um, uh, unless they win, of course, which that's a major provision that has to be added in. Um, so, like, but even in sports where I don't have a clear favorite, there's, like, this tension and stuff. Right. And so, like, seeing the best win while also not feeling stressed about it. Mm -hmm. um is a super just pleasant place to be in. And so it made me think about like, well, what is it that I want from my sports to get me to that same place in some ways? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's interesting because I feel like one of the central aspects of that is the stakes and what is possible when the stakes are lowered mm -hmm. uh, to such an extent that I feel like the humanity and the humanism that is uplifted in Great British Baking and shows like it or competitions like it has the ability to kind of snuff out that toxic competition strain that kind of hinges on there being really high stakes, mm -hmm. you know? Well, but I, I think it's, you know, the stakes, it's interesting because like it doesn't matter what we call the stakes. It's how we feel about them that makes mm -hmm. them important. Mm -hmm. Like, cause in some way it's what the great British baking show is no different than, um, you know, the guy that's the best, uh, street ball player in, uh, New York city or the best handball player in, in Kazakhstan or what, whatever it is like these, these obscure titles that we might have mm -hmm. the best disc golf player in Roanoke. Um, and yet that if you make that super important to you, then it can be as I mean, it can be deadly. We've seen people get in physical and violent altercations over this, what we consider to be meaningless titles. Sure. sure. Uh, and yet so I think there's like a shared understanding in the Great British Baking Show that winning is great, uh, but that's not really why we're here. Maybe it's why we're here, but 
you know, uh, the Great British Baking Show has not put much presence on it. So that means it's not like I can't take it too seriously or I feel foolish for taking it too seriously. Mm -hmm. They've just done a good job of making it, um, making you want to win without making it feel like you losing something. Uh, if you, if you really shit the bed, like Mm -hmm. you're still, you're still getting something out of it. Right. I, I wonder, I mean, maybe that comes down to candidate picking for mm-hmm. the show. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's, I'm sure that they have super competitive people that apply. Right. They just don't ever seem to get on. Right. That's interesting because it now makes me want to do even more of a deep dive into that show a little bit and like what the messaging of that show is in regards to competition. Because mm-hmm. it is also true that when people leave, they are pretty devastated Mm-hmm. You know, like there's, it's, it's rarely without emotion that someone leaves the show and often kind of intense emotion. And those that are competing on the show are also extremely anxious, right? They're, they're at a really heightened state. So while the stakes may seem super low for us on our couch watching Netflix, it's true that the people in the tent are often like high levels of emotion. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, um, John Oliver had a great bit. I think we've talked about this mm-hmm. on his on his thing with Conan O'Brien, where he talked about how uh, it was never about the cake. Yeah, like it's it's always the, about something else, and the cake is a vessel for uh-huh. childhood trauma or <laughs> yeah. never feeling adequate or whatever it may be. But yeah. Yeah. the cake is what brings it to the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it also, I mean, there's a winner. Right. Like, so the the show is sending the message that someone is going to be the best. Someone is going to win. And there's also losers. Someone is going to lose every week. Yeah. I think it's, um, and that's what I'm interested in. Like, it feels like there's enough competition to make me interested, Mm -hmm. but I don't feel gutted about results. Right. Right. I guess that's, I feel like a lot of the times, and maybe I'm totally misreading the situation, but a lot of times they don't want to leave, not because their goal is to win, but because it means they have to leave the experience behind. And that feels like kind of how I would hope that I would be in a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Like if I were on Survivor, I would hope that it would be losing would be less about not getting a million dollars and more about, or Amazing Race is a better example, because I've actually considered Amazing Race is something I might ever be interested in doing. Uh-huh. Um, but like being like, you know, okay, well that sucks that we lost and now I have to go home, but the, I'm missing the experience and that's a bigger deal than missing the a million dollars. Right. Uh, component right. Of it. right. Interesting. Which I do really enjoy the amazing race too. So I think it's some of the same feelings maybe there. Mm-hmm. The extent to which stakes are socially constructed is a fascinating idea, and I feel like we've talked about it a lot, but it it maybe actually kind of connects with something else I was thinking about just last night, and that is the way LeBron James was talking about making it to the finals. Hmm. And he was essentially saying, like, the finals are the only thing that matters, and winning the finals are the only thing that matters. It's not about getting there. So he's he's gotten there 10 times. He's got the most playoff points. I mean, you could argue that from a statistical level, he has like uh, the best playoff statistics of any player ever, uh, which is saying a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Like that puts him above 
Kobe and Jordan and others. And I, it, that the finals matter is silly in a way, right? Like we're, we're choosing to construct that as something that matters. And then also that like, in order to be a great, you have to win the finals and have these Mm -hmm. rings. Like that's all super silly too. And it was all compounded for me last night. And I want to admit the thoughts I have and maybe unpack them a little bit. And that is watching LeBron play this season and seemingly have to like convince himself that this season matters. And that's an impression I have. I don't know if that's true. It's just an impression. It is interesting for me. And it's to add another layer to it. I wonder about the extent to which LeBron James has amassed so much power outside of basketball that it makes basketball either wrongly seem silly for him to be playing it or rightly silly for him to be mm-hmm. playing it. And I don't know which one it is because I, I I was arguing with myself. I was saying that I think it's silly for LeBron James to care about basketball right now says that there are more important things in the world. It's also true that for me to say LeBron James taking basketball seriously is silly is kind of a, it's almost derogatory in a way and a little bit dismissive to athletes in general and professional athletes specifically that like what they do doesn't matter and it, it's not important. And I, I'm, I couldn't get myself out of it cause I was like feeling both. So I was curious, like what you make of that of like, am, am I elevating LeBron James, the business person? And am I like abiding by my beliefs that like, or like my embedded beliefs that capitalism is more important than something like sports. So like capitalist LeBron is more important and powerful than basketball player LeBron. Um, so I guess for me, I'm intrigued because I've had, you know, I, I wonder the same things. I guess in my mind, I, um, uh, I often break it down from the angle of, individual progress like he as a person is growing Mm -hmm. uh and i want to support people growing as into who they want to be as people Mm -hmm. and it's clear that he wants to be um you know this this mogul type person that he's turning himself into Mm -hmm. uh and so from that level like i want to i want to promote whatever he feels to be important about himself and so seeing so much effort going to these outside of the basketball court things makes me like, okay, yeah. So he's, that's where his energy is. So that's what I, I feel like I should support for him. Um, but it is uh, interesting. You're right. Cause it's the, some of the same stuff we talked about before we got on air of like, what happens if those things are counter to what uh, they should be as a, uh, you know, what if someone, you know, to take up, to make totally uh uh, an outside the pale comparison. Like what if someone, you know, was an NBA player and decided they wanted to develop a, a business model where they were um, running a bunch of major casinos um, while smuggling drugs into the country. Like, so that's, I mean, that's clearly a negative progress. Right. Um, um, and so what do I feel about somebody that's enhancing a capitalistic model that, um, uh, is incredibly destructive at the same time. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we see that. So, I mean, like, you know, the, the whole China LeBron situation is very complex in that way. Mm-hmm. 
So it, it, yeah, it takes me to this place too. I, I've had these thoughts about other people like LeBron. I'm thinking of like Tiger Woods, of someone that just gets so far beyond the actual sport in what they're known for and who, what they represent in the broader society. And I wonder if it has something to do with how we understand work and expertise within work. Because I'm thinking of like, if I was an accountant and I wanted to be like the best accountant possible, I would get really good at Microsoft Excel, right? And I would dedicate all my time to developing ex skills within Excel. Mm. And Le that LeBron has to maintain and cultivate expertise at the game of basketball in order to have success in things that are entirely unrelated to basketball that contrast is always really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And so like I think about Tiger Woods, like he's part of the reason, in my opinion, he's not what he once was is because he's not practicing as much. Um, and so it's like, what, what is that like to have to be LeBron in the sense that he's got to go practice his free throws every day in order to maintain this brand and these businesses outside of basketball that have nothing to do with free throws? but they do have things to do with free throws. Like mm -hmm. that, that's interesting to me. And I wonder if there's other examples outside of sports where like uh, an individual or an organization has to like keep doing a, a work wherein the nature of the work is not immediately connected with how they're going to measure success. Yeah. And especially if it's in order to do that, you're, you have to be really good at playing a game. <laughs> Right. Like that, that's what is like, I think what brings all this to the fore for me. Well, and I think, uh, it was, it, I'm intrigued to juxtapose it with another bit of news that, um, just depresses me, but I suppose I'll bring it up anyway, which is that, uh, there seem to be significant signposts that we're going to see a boxing match between Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul. Have you seen this? Oh gosh, no. So, yeah, um, it seems like that's going to happen. And so, I mean, Floyd has moved on, but what does it mean when your sport is still like you're almost mocking it by using it to make uh, your next career even more profitable? Um, yeah, it's just I get frustrated even thinking about it, so I don't want to talk about it, but um, it's absurd. What, what do they think is going to happen? I think uh, a million or people are going to pay pay-per-view to watch it. And they're probably right. Um, so. Okay. I don't know that. Surely Mayweather wouldn't even fight really. Well, no, it would be like, so, I mean, I think what happened, so he fought that kickboxer like two years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if I remember rightly, which I probably don't, what happened then was he went like two rounds of like not really caring and then essentially dismantled them in the final round. Yeah. Because uh, he's still, I mean, like, regardless of what, I mean, like LeBron, whatever you want to say about Floyd, he's still like uh, an extraordinary athlete and a, uh, able to do things I've never seen anybody else do in a boxing ring. Yeah. I mean, I'm like the greatest boxer of all time, I think is fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, he just dismantled this guy after he decided, okay, that's enough playtime in this exhibition. I'm going to just, uh, that's probably what's going to happen in this. Like, you know, they'll, Logan will feel like he's got to work really hard. And at the end, Mayweather will just tag him in the final round and, and drive him out. Gosh. Yeah, that is depressing. <laughs> um, was there anything else you were paying attention to that you're thinking about? 
Uh, not in particular. I don't think so. Yeah. Well, shall we talk about uh, our main topic this week? Let's do it. All right. So we were going to talk about this last week, but we got wrapped up in Pogachar being amazing, which the world championships are happening right now. I'm intrigued to know what's happening with that. Mm-hmm. If we'll have a Slovenia national cha- or world champion as well. But um, uh, so this week we're talking about ignorance as a defense in sports. And I think this goes back to the core of what we are trying to do on this podcast, um, which is talking through sports in a way that, we know that we need to be analyzing sports, but we don't always do because we'd rather just sit down and watch. Um, and so I think the question is in some ways for me, how much should we allow other people to live in that ignorance of what's actually being done and what the actual impacts of what they're watching are versus, um, you know, uh, an information campaign, which is going to be, uh, probably less than successful, but uh, may get them thinking about something. So I'm curious, what was what brought this to mind for you as a topic? Oh gosh, it's been a couple of weeks at this point. There was a particular event um, which is now escaping me. Maybe it's football because football feels like the most tone deaf thing happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, and so, what does it mean to like? be a football fan in the stands at this point. Right. Um, what does it mean to boo players kneeling during the national anthem at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's like, you know, there's certain folks that whatever, like they're, they know what, what they're, what they're doing when they're booing people kneeling during the national anthem. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are folks that we're probably never going to get through to. Right. Um, uh, but there's another group of people that are booing because of something that they perceive is what's happening in that moment when that's really not at all what's happening in that moment. Mm-hmm. And how much um, are you just like, okay, whatever, versus how much are you, uh, do you, how much do we hold them accountable for having that information? How much do we hold ourselves accountable for informing people about things? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those are the big questions in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the first things that, stands out for me is having to admit my own ignorance and my own ignorance mm-hmm. with, I don't know what that's like to occupy that space to where you either just don't know to such a large extent and or don't care to know. So I I was struggling even with trying to kind of empathize, I think. Um, and because I believe in empathy as a way forward, it almost felt like a challenge to myself of to like continue to do the work to empathize with those that caused me the most frustration. Um, and I like was wrestling with that. And I, I think in any activist mindset, I, I think that's an important thing to wrestle with but I also don't know where to fall out on it because part of me is like you were saying, like when do you decide just to say like, I, we're not, we're not going to get through to you. We're not going to be able mm-hmm. to have a conversation. And when do I zoom out and say, oh, I wonder what gets people there. And I wonder if I can empathize with it at all, or if I should empathize with it. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if you listen to invisibilia, um, Occasionally, not often. There was an episode on this question about, uh, and they were doing it 
in regard to incel. Mm. And they told the same story through two lenses. One was empathizing with what gets incels to the place to where they are incels. And the other one saying, we shouldn't empathize with this. This is so wrong at every level that empathy actually deters us from taking appropriate action and talking Mm. about this the way we should talk about it, which is condemn it from top to bottom. And so I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there and see if that brought up anything for you or if, if how you think about that conversation. Yeah. I, you know, um, uh, I wonder the same kind of things like, so when, cause I think these are common questions, right? Like when they're, they're tactical questions, mm-hmm. right? So when do you approach something tactically and say, the best way to achieve this is to sit down and, you know, have a coffee and a two and a half hour conversation with this person that's an incel or this person that's uh, a major football fan and, you know, get their perspective and then share your perspective and walk through some of the complexities of it. And when by doing that, are you, um, you know, if you fail in that, you're, you're potentially, you know, allowing them to be in a more destructive space, but even, in that moment, is that the most effective way to create that change? And I, I perhaps too often come down on that side of empathizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think, you know, for me with the ignorance stuff, I do think I can resonate with it from a degree of, um, you know, I was in young life for two years, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've been in that space of unanalyzed uh, faith or unanalyzed thing i've never been in like a position when you realize how woefully uninformed the general population of the united states is Mm -hmm. like that's something i can't comprehend like never reading a newspaper or you know only getting news from facebook or wherever or not even having those resources like i don't um i don't comprehend that you know so it's like stuff about um I think the guardian or somebody like that sent some reporters to Iowa, talk to construction workers. They're like, I'm really, I'm going to vote for Trump because he fixed healthcare. It's like, well, Trump did nothing for healthcare. Why do you think that? Right. Um, and yet that's, they've been taught that, told that somewhere and they have no reason to disbelieve it because they've not done it. And so it raises questions for me of like, yeah, when, when do you go there? Cause I, I think I, I can empathize with folks. Um, I can't really understand it because I've not lived the not being in reading thing. Like even when I was doing Young Life, you know, I was reading other things that eventually led me to leave that behind. Um, but I am, uh, I do wonder like how much of that, first off, how much of that is a, is a critical thinking skill that we underestimate uh, our own and it's, this is going to sound super arrogant, but we underestimate our own talent at mm-hmm. um, that, you know, I think, and you know this better than I do, even though you're at a pretty high end school, I'm sure you see, see kids that come through that write papers that you're like, you're really just not grasping what you should be grasping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's nothing like, I'm sure you get to a point where like, there's nothing I can do that's going to help you process this mm-hmm. in a more in-depth way. Right. Uh, but then there's also the time part of it. Like how many folks just don't have time or access that we have to that kind of information. Right. Right. 
Yeah, this raised a bunch of things for me. The first is I want to admit that I was not part of Young Life because I thought Young Life was too liberal. <laughs> so I, I I might claim a little one I've up. never heard that before, but I love it. Yeah, I want to claim a little one up on you on that one as far as uh, <laughs> where we come from. Uh, um, yeah, the the second thing I'll say, just to make it more explicit, I think my way out of this conversation for myself has been just to be a teacher because I don't know where to go with this conversation other than to say, like, we as a society have to get better at critical thinking. Which, like, what are you mm-hmm. like? Of course, like that's the, that's the goal. So it's not even worth saying. Other than just to share that, like, for me personally, my way out of this problem is to be a teacher. And I'll also say that um, if we were to look for hopeful spaces in this, I I was struck to stay on using uh, my students as an example. So I was using curriculum from the Stanford History Education Group that has put together this like amazing curriculum on digital literacy. And essentially the power that comes from showing students a fake source having them believe that it's a real source and then showing them that it's fake afterward of like how easy it is to teach someone to like, Oh, I'm missing things in the world. And to cultivate that as a like worldview, right? Like to go out in the world and to like open your eyes every morning and say like, I'm going to be inundated with things that like I'm, I'm not capable of seeing completely. So like that humility, that ability to like handle complexity and accept that we can't see everything. Yeah. When it comes to having conversations with people that don't share that, I, that's where I get lost and say, well, I'll just Mm. be a teacher. (laughs) Right. Because I don't know what to do with the Fox news watching NFL fan. Um, I I don't know how we reach them and I, I don't know what we do about, people booing NFL players kneeling. Um, It also made me think of, this is kind of random, but I found the words really powerful and insightful and like really to the point. Chris Rock was talking in an interview recently. um, His frustration with the Democratic Party right now is he, he was like, it's really simple for me. He's like, the world is really complex. The Democrats' job is to talk about that complexity and they're not doing it. They're trying to make the world simple too. And he's like, if you're trying to make the world simple from that perspective, then that's not real either. Um, and so I don't know, there, there was like a major lament for that, that our public common discourse is like so simplified right now. I don't know if that's a new thing, but it might be heightened right now than it, more than it has in the past. But when it comes to like how that plays out in the sports world, I, I don't know how to reach those fans that are booing. Yeah, well, I think, you know, from a very practical perspective, I've very much come down the side of education is the only way mm-hmm. to get through it. But there's kind of two two thoughts I have there. One being, you know, like what there's a risk in showing people that fake news stuff, because in some ways you're breaking down and it's, you know, you and I get it. Like we don't trust uh, what CNN is going to tell us either. Right. But it's a level of like, uh, I trust them more than other sources. So like, it's not just like, there's a risk of you teach that young person, we don't trust everything we read. And that becoming we don't trust anything, which really what we're trying to teach is like, read everything with 
the right. appropriate lens that you have on it. And that's a super nuanced perspective mm-hmm. that I think, you know, I'm still wrapping my head around mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm pretty accomplished at it mm-hmm. in some way. But so here's my other question for you then though, building on that, which is um, I, uh, I kind of have issue with this phrase that we on the left are supposed to be big fans of right now, which is talking about people sharing their truths yeah. or, my truths and that like I find it, I both understand it and find it very important, um, but also find it really troubling that we can acknowledge and uh, support different truths. Like, I mean, so if like, if we use um, uh, Appalachia as an example, uh, we're not talking a ton about sports here, but whatever, that's fine. Um, uh, you know, like there's two very strong narratives about Appalachia. There's one that Appalachia is this rundown place with very little economic opportunity, uh, some incredible e- environmental destruction in places, uh, and just incredible poverty rates. There's also this narrative about a vibrant culture and uh, incredible music and uh, art scene, families that have been there forever. And so those narratives are both equally true. And so like being able to hold those instead of being saying like, this is my truth or, you know, recognizing uh, for me, it's hard to, to distinguish and say that someone's, someone's experiences and their feelings and their emotions can be very different, but truth uh, I really struggle with this concept that truth is different and what that allows for our opponents to then say about what their truth is and then be able to just rest on that and say, well, that's my truth. I don't have to do anything about it. Right. Right. <clears throat> well, I don't I mean, you just picked my master's thesis as an example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> I'm just giving you a runway here, which you take off. <laughs> well, I, I I hear you entirely, and um, McKay and I actually have been having this conversation a lot recently. And I think for me, where I am right now is like I am in a hundred percent behind the like let's collect our truths and let's do the work necessary for having those conversations in. Uh, equitable spaces and to do that necessitates uh, some activism and it necessitates taking stands and saying like I hear you that that's your truth but it's stupid <laughs> like a willingness to say that like in in a loving way I think is possible so I, I think um, if we were to take it back to booing NFL players that are making a statement about systemic racism, I totally believe in the value of letting someone express their truth about why they're booing. But I also think it's really necessary to go the next step and say, well, let's, let me show you how that is harmful and how it Mm -hmm. hurts people and how it is potentially very unsafe and how it is, leading to deaths like and so i i think that's possible too um or i i guess i hope where i start to hope is is that that's possible Hmm. if that makes sense yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and kind of the question it raises for me is about uh is a very personal one which is are we how responsible are we to all do these things Mm -hmm. um like um or 
so I think we've seen that be very successful. I think about Drew Brees in particular and, you know, like how he was shouted down by his teammates um, uh, in that moment this summer uh, and to see his response and seemingly that he's changed his tune. Uh, it's just, I think, uh, shows that those kind of conversations can work because there are a lot of people that would love to hear that. On the flip side, there are a lot of people that that it's not going to work for. Mm-hmm. Um and so my, I really struggle with those conversations because I often assume that nothing I'm going to say is going to change that. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather work at like a different level. And so this question then arises for me is like, how much are we all responsible for doing that? Like, how much should I hold myself responsible for not challenging people? Mm-hmm. Or is it something that we can say, you know, it's not always the right moment and that the, if, you know, there are different ways to have these conversations. I, I just don't know. Like, I guess I want to say uh, if I had my druthers that, um, you know, let me work on a policy and um, a philanthropic level to fix these problems. And that's where my role is. It's not to be the confrontational person, mm-hmm. but maybe I need to be the confrontational person. Mm-hmm. That's a good question that, yes, I, we're, we have that in common. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know fully what to do about that. Um, I, I guess in some ways it does make me think, I, I often ruminate on and consider and ask myself questions and try and have the conversation as much as possible of like, I find the the hum- the charge of for the humanitarian is 10 times as difficult as the charge mm-hmm. for fox news mhm and i i i wonder how much value there is in admitting that because i feel like when we admit it it does allow for a little bit of the pressure to be released that maybe if we're not getting it right today it's because our charge is so much more difficult Hmm. And our charge is so much more difficult, I think, maybe to just try and make it more clear is that, like, we're attempting to illuminate complexity. And if we've learned anything from humanity, it's that (laughs) simplicity is somehow feels better, right? Like, we want Mm -hmm. black and we want white, we want good and bad. And when that is exploited by these mastodons of like fake truth being like the Fox news of the world. Uh, the charge becomes even harder and is compounded even more mm. for those that are pursuing the, hu- the mission of the humanities, which is to show like how much we don't know. All right. And so like to do that in the face too, of like extreme injustice. Um, and when the, the problem is immediate, that's where I'm like, I don't know what to do now. Um, you know, like in the, in these more micro examples of like where systemic racism is having immediate effects, me intellectually pontificating on complexity isn't all that useful anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's where I, like my approach to it all starts to fall apart. Uh, and I have, I, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it feels really difficult because I uh, I think we need to all be in those places, but I do feel like we have different people have different roles. And so, you know, mm-hmm. understand that and know what you're good at in some ways, mm-hmm. but yeah. Hmm. Well, 
who knows? I, uh, I do think education is the key, but, um, and I do think that there are different ways that that needs to happen. And so hopefully my hope would be if I'm going to strike a hopeful pose as we get towards the end here, mm-hmm. which I, I wouldn't say I am hopeful, but, um, maybe just maybe, um, uh, we're required to be different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so like at the end of the day, for me personally, I would, on my tombstone, I'd rather have the word humanist up there than just about anything else. Right. Yeah. Um, that I care, I want to do whatever is best for humanity and people. Right. Um, and so like, but my lens on that is a very analytical, uh, very uh, research oriented take. And, you know, I think my hope would be that what we see is that there are different kinds of people on the other side and they respond to different kinds of motivations. Mm-hmm. Some of them respond to, confrontational motivation some of them respond to long-term uh little niggling doubts that you can put in their mind some of them respond to analytical um argumentation others respond to uh examples of violence taking place in front of their face and so my hope would be that if we hit all of these angles and each person picks up where they feel comfortable doing so that that's how we maybe hit the widest swath of that group of people that is open and may ever change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It may be reaching leadership within those realms Mm -hmm. that we're wanting to reach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Creating people that can go out and do that work themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just had the image go through my head of, um, doing a a fake news lesson on a jumbotron at an NFL game saying can you spot the fake source on the jumbotron like you know they have those like little quiz competition things up there so the risk would be uh, of course that um i was just thinking about like what could you do it's like where's the audience you'd try to reach with the fake news stuff right so like danville kentucky mm-hmm. right um so let's like uh nicholasville let's put a sign up there that's got fake news on one billboard and the next billboard is like that was fake news did you believe that and get angry about that right. don't believe whatever yada, yada yada but of course my immediate thought is well the risk is people aren't going to believe the second sign. Right. They're only going to believe the first sign. Right. Uh, and now you've created a new rumor or myth about something. Well, so that's a perfect example of what we're talking about, right? Like you need a minute to then show mm-hmm. like, okay, you might be having the thought now that no source is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Now I need to rebuild for you how we like cultivate trustworthiness in sources, which is it takes a minute you know, it's tricky. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to mention one other interpretation of ignorance as defense that I came up with, like that my brain came up with, um, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking of Patrick Reed and others like him that say like, I didn't know the rule when they broke a rule. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, to try and make this as swift as possible, but from like a really zoomed out lens, that's interesting that to look at when there is space for someone to do that and there's not immediate absolute condemnation of someone doing that. So I think of like doping is the other like really clear example of this of like, I didn't know what I was putting in my body 
and like the rules are still going to be cast down on that person. They're still going to be suspended, whatever, but they get out of having to face kind of admitting that they cheated. And I think that's interesting that, um, that the human beings do that from a like sociological level. And then I was thinking about the other options you have when you're in a moment like that as an individual. And I was just thinking of how powerful it would be if Patrick Reed were to say like, I cheated. Like what if today he comes out and he says, you know what? Like last year when I did that and I moved that sand, I had a, like a complete lapse in judgment and I, I don't know why I did it. I used to do it when I was a kid and I was like nervous and I think I like got caught up in that and I'm really, really embarrassed that I did it, but I'm even more embarrassed that I like feigned ignorance and I want to like start to learn about like what led me to that point and I want to like create space for others that do this in their life to like feel comfortable facing it and realize that they're not bad people, but like our decisions are the consequences of all these other factors. It just made me think of like how powerful that would be um, mm -hmm. and hopeful that would be if there was more space for athletes to go away from ignorance as defense and more space for them to say like, ah, I really messed up there. And so I of course was mm -hmm. even thinking about Lance, like mm -hmm. Lance in some ways has come close to that, <laughs> you know, like, there's you he's know? closer than others but still not fully obviously um i don't know just the like what would it look like if in our society that was something that was more common and how to make it more common maybe mm -hmm. um, yeah so i just wanted to point that out that i kind i don't know if you have any thoughts on that but well, i have a lot of thoughts although we probably need yeah. to wrap this up yeah um, but uh, well maybe we can come back to yeah. it yeah yeah, I'd be intrigued to come back to that and think about like maybe we could walk through like levels of acknowledgement of cheating, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. That'd be interesting to talk about. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. All right, man. Alrighty. You got anything else? I got a trivia question. Oh, you got a trivia question. All right. I'm excited. Hit us well, up. Part of that, the second part for me was how when there are a lot of rules, it's possible to claim ignorance. That's part of what makes it possible. And so I was looking up weird rules in sports. Uh, and so I was wondering, um, do you know what happens if you catch the ball in your hat in baseball? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, the other team is awarded a triple. Interesting. <laughs> You can't catch the ball in your hat. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Isn't that silly? Now I'm wondering, like, what if you were, like, jersey? Like, if you had the button-up jerseys and you used your jersey to catch the ball, what would, yeah. what would the I think you can do it on accident. You can't do it on purpose. Okay. So, hmm. that's all. <laughs> all right. Fascinating. Yeah. All right, man. All right, well, uh, you have a good week, man. All right. Thanks, dude. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's 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 calling LeBron Black Jesus. As a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.